thank you for tuning in to this episode of Whitley Pin Talks. Today is the first in the series called Major Funcast, which is our first ever public sector focused series. Today we've got Lupe Garcia and Selena Ceres to take it from here. So I'll let you guys introduce yourselves and then get into the content. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our first uh, public sector podcast. My name is Lupe Garcia. I'm a partner in the firm in the public sector practice. I've been with the firm for 13 years. The entirety of my career has been spent uh, working with local governments, cities, counties, school districts, community college, and other special purpose governments. Just to give you a little background on myself, I am a native Houstonian. That's somewhat rare these days because it seems like everyone in Houston is from somewhere else, but I was born and raised in North Houston. I attended all Dean ISD schools and I graduated from the University of Houston. I'm in public accounting and I'm a CPA, but I do not have an accounting degree, so that might shock a lot of people out there. Uh, my undergraduate degree is actually in finance uh, from the Bauer College of Business. Uh, uh, fortunately, I was given an opportunity at the firm and I started my career as a staff auditor and I went to school at night and the evenings on the weekends to get the hours I needed to take the CPA exam. And I'm Selena Sedis. I am not a native Houstonian. I actually transferred from El Paso, Texas. Uh, it's 14 years ago, actually, in a few days. Um, it'll be 14 years. And I, I went to the University of Texas at El Paso, where I got my undergrad and my master's degree in accounting. My first firm was working with uh, public sector clients. Um, five years later, I moved to Houston where I continued to work with public sector clients. Um, I began working with Lupe Garcia in 2007 um, and we've worked with the same clients and love what we, what we do and we're just excited to be here today. Okay, so a lot of you may not be familiar with the public sector and so you know, let's talk a little about about what the public sector industry is and does and, and who they are. They're all around us. You may not realize it, but I'm sure everyone, we all live in the state of Texas. So we all live in, in a city or we might be in an unincorporated part of the county, uh, but these are all uh, forms of government that provide a lot of the services that we use every day uh, and sometimes take for granted because we just don't think about how water shows up at our house in our faucet or especially right now during COVID-19 we really appreciate our teachers with all of the homeschooling that's happening. Exactly exactly <laughs> so you know the local governments are some of the largest employers in our area that rival some of the biggest companies that are headquartered in in the state the city of Houston for example has almost 22,000 employees Harris County has 17,000 employees uh, we have some very large school districts in our area. Fort Bend ISD has nearly 10,000 employees. KDISD is also in the 10,000 range, and, and Pasadena ISD are 8,400. So local governments have a, a huge impact on our economy, on our daily lives, and we love it. That's why we do what we do and why we love working with our clients, and we're happy to bring this information to you in the form of this podcast. Lupe, I think sometimes you... you you tell our associates or you you i guess liken our cafeteria operations to restaurant operations so kind of talk to us about that analogy on just to put it in perspective how many kids are fed on a daily basis uh throughout the state through our school districts charter schools even private schools which are not really counted here in in the uh, Texas Education Agency but if you were to incorporate even private schools that would be um, a tall order. 
you know, this is, I'm going to give credit to Chris Bro because this is a broism of his, an analogy that he likes to give. And, and it really hit, it really hit home with me because I spent a lot of time in a restaurant uh, working uh, through school and he likened all the cafeterias in a local area in a local school district to a restaurant chain. They're, they're the largest restaurant chain in that area serving two meals a day to tens of thousands of students in their local school district. And across the state, there's 5.4 million students receiving breakfast and lunch every day. So just those child nutrition service operations are a huge business in themselves. Yeah, so we, we thank all of our public sector employees, and most of them, if not all, are considered essential personnel, and especially in, in light of COVID-19, we, we thank all of them for doing what they do and feeding the kids in the area, whether you're in the Houston Metroplex, in the El Paso area, in the Valley, or Austin, or DFW area, you all are doing a great job, and, and we thank you for that. So, you know, you mentioned COVID-19, Selena, with the uh, coronavirus disruption and stay at home, work from home order, you know, what our board of board of trustees, city councils having to do, how are they operating a little differently? Well, I think, not I think, but I know um, on all the board meetings or council meetings that we've attended virtually, the number one agenda item has been related to emergency procedures because of COVID-19. And so I, I believe most, if not all councils and boards and um, Board of Trustees have have passed their resolutions uh, to to forego uh, competitive procurement procedures as it relates to COVID-19, um, specifically naming the crisis in their resolution. So that's important before you, you take uh, alternative procedures uh, for a lot of the things that you have to do to keep your businesses running. This resolution is critical. And whether you start applying for FEMA reimbursement uh, down the road, uh, this resolution will be key. What about uh, donations made by our local governments to uh, local healthcare entities? You know, we've received this question um, quite a bit, and a lot of the the hospitals are asking for medical supplies for from the that that are being used with the career and technical uh, programs that the state funds or that's funded locally so a lot of the high schools already have these medical supplies um, that they're using for educational purposes so some of our school districts have asked is this considered a gift of public funds and so if you run the scenario through the three-part test of gift of public funds you'll see that it does pass because one it is it does um, have a public it serves a public purpose the district will have control over the goods uh, that they're loaning or donating and making sure that that's in writing and then obviously the return of the the return benefit will be that it 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 helps the community and indirectly or directly helps the students um, that that may be affected by uh, the virus so what's essential here is to make sure that when you do donate or you loan any of these medical supplies that you memorialize everything um, it, whether if it's if it's with another uh, governmental entity um, a governmental hospital that you develop an interlocal agreement if it's a private hospital make sure that you involve your district attorney or your city attorney to make sure that you you have the the proper language in there but you know this is obviously a time of of crisis and and it's and it's warranted but documentation and all of this will be key so you mentioned documentation being key and so that 
leads me to my next thought on record keeping. You know, there's been a lot of legislation passed in the recent days and weeks, and hopefully local governments will be receiving some relief and some reimbursements for some of these coronavirus-related expenditures. What should our local governments be doing to be able to track this internally in their general ledgers? So we've received a lot of questions whether they should um, implement or develop new funds to track all of the expenditures specifically related to COVID-19, or they're using another identifier within their current account code structure. All of that is is perfectly fine. Uh, the key is, again, Lupe, as you said, is documenting it, making sure that you can track it so that at any point you can run a query out of your financial software to show that. And just remembering that January 27, 2020 is the day that um, COVID-19 uh, became very relevant and you could start tracking these expenditures for federal reimbursement, state reimbursement, etc. It'll be important for pre-award cost. Um, it'll be important for the, the grant award cost when our grant applications um, are actually effective. Um, and of course, procurement, any procurement procedures, documenting why you're foregoing any competitive uh, procurement and invoking these emergency procedures will be key as well. And Lupe, also, let's talk a little bit about reimbursements as they relate to uh, student payments uh, for field trips. And this is specifically having to do with um, school district uh, traveling um, or any other payments. Uh, what, what should our, our school districts, charter schools, be doing with those funds that they've collected so far? Um, you can hold it, record it as a liability, and when the time is appropriate, they can worry or they can figure out how they're going to get those funds back to uh, the respective families. Yeah, you run the risk of not not getting the checks mailed to the right address. They become still checks, and then you have to follow other procedures. So yeah, that's one less thing to worry about. It's mainly an accounting issue that just needs to be um, dealt with in that way versus logistic, worrying about logistics and all of that. Right. Another question we've received a lot is, is related to the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And so that allowed for uh, emergency paid leave and sick leave uh, that employees were, could be entitled to. And in the act, there was actually a provision for a payroll tax credit uh, to help offset some of the cost that's going to be borne by the employers in providing this additional paid leave. Unfortunately for our uh, governmental entities out there, this payroll tax credit is, is not applicable as of today. There's there's talk of, of making this payroll tax credit uh, possibly uh, extended to local governments, but as of as of today, April 10th, it is not. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that brings us to other funding that is going to be available or is available to our governmental entities, specifically uh, to educational entities, higher ed and K through 12, you know, there's about 13.5 billion dollars set aside specifically for K through 12 um, educational institutions, and then higher ed, uh, a combo actually of higher ed and educational institutions of about three billion dollars. The problem here in Texas, and and ASBO International has published some interesting charts that, you know, I think in the state of Texas the amount of funding that that we'll be receiving if we were to make it a per pupil number is only about 194 dollars 
per student, which doesn't really amount to anything if you stop and think about it. Um, so we not only have to think about what's happening at the state level, Governor Abbott has said that you know, we're going to be facing a revenue shortfall at the state level. So you combine that with the issues related to COVID-19. And once you add the, the CARES Act funding, it probably won't make us whole. Right. And if you think about the major revenue streams for our, our governments out there, property tax, sales tax, those are going to be impacted uh, greatly. And that's going to, there's a lot of uncertainty with property values, with property property tax collections. Um, sales tax is going to be felt here in the next, in the coming months because that is received two months in arrears. But with all the restaurants closed, the hotels closed, the travel industry has been shut down, uh, no entertainment, that sales tax revenue is going to dry up. Uh, pretty significantly. So there's going to be a lot of cuts that are going to need to be made uh, by our local governments. Right, right. And so if we also think about what we should be doing from a K through 12 perspective as well is, you know, I think it's going to be essential that you do track those expenditures like we talked about prior um, to this this topic here. But if you remember back in 2009, um, under the American Recovery, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or ARA funding, you know, they just added additional funding to the existing federal funds, and we had to figure out what the compliance requirements um, were applicable to, to this new funding. Uh, we anticipate that the, the confusion will be the same, so that's why we've learned from 2009 uh, from that economic downturn, downturn and everything we had to do from an accounting perspective. So tracking is, is essential right now and, and knowing exactly what you spent your funds on, especially when they bring on this additional CARES Act uh, funding, it'll be really critical that, that we're able to identify those expenditures. Um, everything is in limbo, I think, especially uh, with state funding. We're really not knowing how much will be available, especially through our K through 12s. And a little bit about me, I always make everything into a school district, no matter what it is. It's a, it's, it's a thing of mine that everything becomes a K-12 or higher ed uh, issue. Uh, but one of the things with House Bill 3 coming into play, that was a huge bill passed in the last legislative session. Um, state aid uh, is usually settled up. It's a process where the state determines how much has a school district earned and how much have we paid them. So what's do does the school district owe us or do we owe them uh, any funds? That typically happens in September this year. It may not happen as early as September. It may happen in October or November. So we're advising our clients to expect uh, changes made to the accounting records later on in the year. Um, it, it's going to be later than than what we're accustomed to. Uh, so just being flexible with that. It's a, a year of, you know, aside from COVID-19, um, House Bill 3 really uh, did a number on on the estimations developed by our, our school districts. Um, so it's, it's a year to be patient and, and just to know that we're all uh, going through the same thing. Right. We've talked a lot about coronavirus and its effect on accounting and financial reporting and operations, uh, but a lot of our clients have been asking us, how is the financial statement audit going to be impacted? What's going to be different this year uh, with the audit because of the coronavirus stay-at-home order? And the first one to mention is inventory observations. Our June 30 year-ends are, are less than two months away, and their inventories, which would typically occur on June 30th, are 
around that date uh, may not happen because of the state home order. So what are we going to do with if it's a material balance? How are we going to observe or, or substantiate that inventory actually existed on that date? Um, so there's been some thoughts and some guidance already provided. Uh, one thing we could do is perform the inventory observation at a later date uh, and then work backwards from that date as far as uh, vouching the orders and the, the uses of inventory back to the financial statement date. Uh, another one is using technology, you know, using cameras and GoPros and being there, being there virtually, but that poses some risks also with you know, are they truly at the warehouse that we want to verify inventory at? Or is this an actual live recording or was this recorded on another date? Um, hopefully this might be a, a moot point because because of the coronavirus operations have been impacted where they're not inventory. Even, is inventory low. may be at, yeah. a, at a low level. Uh, so it might not even be material to the financial statements. And even if it's not material to the financial statements, a lot of our clients are saying, you know, we don't want to end up in the newspaper that, you know, inventory went missing, especially when things are so weird right now. Um, there are some fraud risks. So some of our clients have said, what if we select the 30 largest items um, and count those from shelf from the shelf, compare it to what's in the accounting records, and then go from the top 30 to uh, what's on the shelf, vice versa, you know, the the reverse and just counting the, the largest items to get, gain some comfort. You know, what I've always been saying is just make sure that you document the key controls. How are you safeguarding the controls so that uh, the bad actors within an organization don't take advantage of these weird times? And that's what's important. And I know a lot of a lot of clients are even changing their controls within their financial software because some of the campuses, for example, in a school district, the campus personnel are not allowed to be on site, but the administrative personnel are allowed. So a lot of those administrative personnel will have to assume those duties that the campus personnel have had have done in the past. So you mentioned controls and with everyone working from home or most everyone working from home, the normal policies and procedures aren't being followed. And so the controls have changed since um, the last time we might have been on site uh, performing the audit. So we're going to have to gain an understanding what these new controls are. What are the controls that are in place now um, over disbursements, especially to employees and to vendors providing goods and services? Yeah. So right. that's going to impact our risk assessment and our t test of internal controls also. Yeah, and Lupin, if I can add um, another CRISPROism, um, that this is definitely not a time to play uh, hide-and-seek, but it's a, a game of show-and-tell. I mean, this is when we really, we need you all as clients, um, as the auditees, to tell us exactly what's happening, your concerns, uh, to protect the organization. Because again, some things may not be material to the financial statements, won't affect the users, but whatever hits the newspaper um, is a big deal. It does make a big splash. So we've got to be careful with that. Right. I have noticed over the years that everything is becoming more and more electronic. So that helps, you know, given that a lot of us are working remotely, uh, but we do have clients where it's still very paper based. And so we're going to, that's going to be a challenge uh, to overcome uh, if everyone's still working from home as, as we work through the audit. So access to book, books and records could be a challenge. I think what works best is when our clients are able to give us remote access, read-only access into their software system. That way we can look into the general ledger and see invoices and the transactions uh, for our testing purposes. That's right. 
Uh, we already do this, so confirmations, we've been utilizing confirmations.com, which is an electronic form of, of confirming balances with financial institutions, so we'll continue to do that. Um, we might have to include some additional representations at the end of the audit in the management representation letter. Uh, if there's anything related to the coronavirus or the disruption in operations or just any challenges or uh, other factors that need to be Or even in disclosed. the management discussion in an LSE uh, annual financial reports or comprehensive annual financial reports, just um, discussing the effects of COVID-19 on operations and, and perhaps if it is... Um, less than um, acceptable or if it's detrimental to the organization, um, an emphasis of matter paragraph would need to be added um, and and um, corresponding note disclosures too. So we'll have to keep an eye out for that. And, and right now we're talking about it. So we need to remember that uh, when September, October, November uh, come around for, for actual issuance of those items. Right. I've also read some articles that reference that there might be qualified opinions for the first time ever if, for example, inventory can't be observed or there's some other form of audit evidence the auditor isn't able to obtain. Um, so let's make sure we identify any possible areas of the audit where that might be a possibility and when we get that cleared up or addressed uh, as soon as possible uh, in the audit process. Right. And so I think, you know, we've had we had two critical um governmental uh, accounting sta standards that were supposed to be implemented uh, this year and in the next year. So GASB 84 has to do with uh, custodial funds or uh, agency funds prior to GASB 84. Um, and GASB 87 was the lease pronouncement, uh, which is the sister pronouncement to the corporate side of, of um, lease, the lease um, pronouncement as well. So there are talks. Uh, that GASB will delay that. It's not official yet, but their exposure draft is uh, their first teleconference to discuss this is April 14th with a follow-up teleconference on May 26th. So we should have uh, clear guidance by that time. I wish it were sooner, but May 26th will have to do. Um, and Lupe, you and I have been talking about, well, a lot of people have been planning for the custodial funds, for the uh, fiduciary fund statements uh, for over a year now, some for two, two years. years. So it's not that um, crazy to, to have to wait or it's not that big of a relief, um, but, but perhaps it is one less thing to worry about if we do delay it. And then GASB 87 on the leases, I mean, that that is a huge undertaking for those entities that are lessors and lessees and have significant lease agreements on there, so. Right, so there more than likely will be some relief there if our local governments need to take advantage of the extension on implementing those two standards. Right. So for this next part of the podcast, we're gonna have a lightning round of some fun fast facts about uh, you and I. And so my first question for you is, what was your first car? It was a 1992 white Chevy pickup. And I could only drive it to school and back. I lived 1.7 miles from the house, and that was the extent of my driving. And so it was uneventful for most of high school. <laughs> okay. So since that first truck of yours, how, how many vehicles have you had in your lifetime to well, date? Well, cars bring me a lot of emotional joy. And so between the age of 16 and a half to 40, I've had 17 vehicles. 
Um, I went a little crazy at the age of, starting at the age of 23 when I had my first job. Well, actually 22, my full-time job. Started buying my own vehicles and probably getting a new car. Every year I had one blip where I had two cars in one year. It's an exciting year. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first car, Lupe? So my first car was a 1994 uh, Nissan Altima. It was a black four-door sedan, uh, very boring-looking car. I got it when I was, um, I think I got it right before I turned 17. And so that was my first car. Um, at, I worked, well, I, I purchased that car because I had already worked and, and saved up enough money, and uh, my dad helped. My parents helped me buy it. Yeah, and for the listeners out there, Lupe is only a year in, in ten months younger. So. Right. So my total number of cars <laughs> is four. A fraction of what a I've fraction had. of the number of cars you've had. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I think I've had four cars. Yes, you have not lived, right, friend? So, <laughs> well, before we get off the cars, what would you say your dream car is? The RC five hundred. But I'm a terrible driver, so I don't know if that's a great choice for me. Quite dangerous. So maybe the <laughs> RC350 would be a good start. <laughs> the okay. Lexus RC350. Yeah. What about you? I would pick the the Nissan Skyline GTR. The twin turbo V6 all-wheel drive. So that's the car I would want. Goes fast, I take it? It goes pretty fast. <laughs> it's 11 seconds in the quarter mile. If you live your life a quarter mile at a time. <laughs> so Lupe, I know you have uh, three kids under the age of five, so maybe TV watching is not high priority. So I do know you listen to a lot of books on Audible. So how many books would you say you've listened to in the last year or two? I checked this recently, and so I have 55 titles in my library, and I've probably listened to those 55 books over the last two to three years. That's a lot. And so, what's the current book you're listening to? So the current book I'm listening to is about the Civil War, but okay. I, I, it's not always uh, historical. I listen to, to fiction as, as well. So since I do spend a lot of time in the car, I want to make it as useful as possible. So that's where I get all my listening uh, done is in the car. Yes, the commuting right. in Houston is, right. <laughs> is crazy. Yeah. So if, <laughs> the listeners out there, if you haven't used Audible, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's especially when you're listening to books that are narrated by the author. Uh, those are very entertaining as well. Yep. So for me, I guess I do have, I only have an 11 year old uh, son. So I have a little bit more time compared to Lupe. Yes. <laughs> so I've seen the, all seasons of All American. It was fascinating. Tay Diggs was awesome. Um, so any sports show is amazing. So that was good. And then I stopped there always a fan of the Real Housewives of wherever. Um, so um, when I need some brainless TV uh, just to turn off the brain, that's what I turn on. Yeah. Probably shouldn't admit that <laughs> live, but that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, like you said, my five-year-old and three-year-old do control the television for the most part. Uh, but in those rare instances where I am able to watch what I want, which is typically after the midnight because <laughs> they're asleep. <laughs> right. I'm either watching uh, the YouTube channels that I subscribe to. There's actually a lot of good content on YouTube if, if y'all haven't checked that out. Uh, so there's a lot of automotive related YouTube channels <laughs> I watch online. Uh, but as far as Netflix and streaming, uh, currently 
I'm watching Money Heist. I believe that's the name of the okay. of the series. Yeah, it's actually a Spanish series that they've dubbed in English, and um, yeah, it has my attention at the moment. <laughs> okay, and what was your first job, and at what age? My first job uh, was at Kroger, and I actually started my uh, working there when I was uh, 16. On my 16th birthday, I spent it at Kroger my first day checking out groceries as a cashier at Kroger. Yeah, and I think our, our parents are share the same philosophy that they didn't want us working at a young age. So I started, my first job was at, uh, as a receptionist at the company my dad worked at. And um, parents were very against it because the fear was you're going to love money instead of education. So they were very against it. But we pushed through and we kept working. <laughs> for yeah. it. I think uh, being a cashier was appropriate because, you know, from a very early age, I was reconciling on a daily basis <laughs> <laughs> my sales to the amount of cash that I yeah. took in. And within a year or so, I was promoted and I worked in the in the courtesy booth. So I was doing that for all the cashiers and selling money orders and lotto tickets and cashing checks yeah. and taking utility bill payments and s selling money orders. I mentioned that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. very nice. Yeah. So it, it was it was a very good first job. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Since it was the grocery store close to where I lived, I saw, you know, a lot of my friends, people I went to school with, neighbors would come through. So. That's very cool. Yeah. And there was a manager that let me take cakes home at night. Bonus. Bonus. Yes. Yes. I think it's because he wanted to take one home, so. <laughs> so he wouldn't feel bad. He let me grab one, too. <laughs> so my family benefited in that way. We always had a cake on the kitchen table. Very nice. All right. Well, for, I guess, our next podcast, we're hoping to bring Sarah Langlois with, she's a partner with KBS Law, and that firm specializes uh, with public sector entities as well. She's a great resource, lots of fun, so we look forward to having her on our podcast. Um, and so this is probably the only time that I'll be able to say, but I had a great time with my other pod because we're two peas in a pod on this podcast. So <laughs> Lupa didn't want that uh, title. So it was right. That wasn't the name we were going to use. So she's getting it out of her system. Yes, this is, he now. said this was the first and last time I could use it. And so it's done. It's dead. It's out of my system. Right. Thank you. <laughs> well, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our first uh, series, first episode in this series of our public sector podcast, w, uh, Whitley Penn Talks. Uh, Selena and I will see you on the next one, and hopefully Sarah will be joining us as well. Thank you. Oh.